From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Often the narrative with HIV is that it's now a preventable, treatable and no longer life-limiting condition, but that's not the case for all HIV patients. Some patients who were diagnosed with HIV long before newer treatments arrived on the market may have cycled through multiple treatments and have built resistance to them and are no longer responding. Today we're joined by Professor Andrew Carr, a clinical immunologist who works in the area of HIV and antiretroviral therapy at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Thanks for joining us on The Tea Room. You're very welcome. Could you explain to us a little bit about the challenges that face particularly some of the older patients with HIV-1 diagnosis that you treat, um, whose disease maybe predates some of the quite amazing drugs that we've seen emerge in the last decade or so? Sure thing. There are a few groups of people with more complicated HIV care that tend to gravitate towards facility, you know, hospital facilities like mine rather than in general practice where the majority or sexual health clinics where the majority of HIV care now takes place. And within that are people for whom there are lots of other things going on in their lives that complicate their care, such as uh, mental health issues or drug and alcohol uh, issues. And then there are the patients you mentioned who have had lots of serial undertreatment, if you will, uh, beginning in the late 1980s, uh, whereas uh, complete treatment that fully suppressed HIV replication and allowed immune function to recover and health to recover didn't arrive till 1996. Uh, and simple non-toxic versions of that triple therapy didn't arrive probably till the mid-2000s. So what we have is a very small proportion, a couple of percent of people with HIV whose treatment has failed. Uh, and uh, for some, if it's an adherence issue, then by addressing adherence problems, sometimes you can get them back on track. Uh, but if it's a virological resistance issue, then those individuals need new classes of treatment. Uh, and so any new class that comes along is always welcome. Uh, and for, fortunately, the proportion of individuals who need those new classes has shrunk substantially over the last 20 years. So it would certainly be less than 5% of people uh, in my clinic who would have virological failure, uh, and it would be a smaller proportion again who had virological failure because of virological resistance. So fostemzivir is uh, a first-in-class uh, medication that prevents the attachment of HIV to its target cells, so the CD4 positive cells. Uh, and it has gone through uh, a somewhat unusual development program where it focused predominantly on patients with uh, a lot of treatment experience and a lot of virological failure. Uh, and so its pivotal phase three trial was in heavily treatment experienced adults who basically had zero or maybe one uh, treatment option available to them. Uh, and the 
responses over sort of 96 weeks have now become available. So when you talk about that new drug, it has recently been approved by the TGA as a first-in-class treatment option. Could you give us a little bit more information about how it performed in the clinical trials? Uh, so the, the pivotal trial was the uh, highly treatment experienced population with uh, one or no treatment classes available to them. So these people had multi-class resistance uh, and maybe, and once you take away the drugs that have potential activity and you subtract the other drugs that those patients can't tolerate, you end up with a very small pool of medications. And so we didn't enter those that trial with huge expectations that an enormous proportion of them would become undetectable. Uh, and so the experience was that over uh, 96 weeks, 60% um, of them uh, ended up with an undetectable viral load. Uh, so, you know, for the three out of five patients, you've probably converted a life expectancy of a couple of years to hopefully a life expectancy of decades. Uh, the other aspect of the medication, and I think one of its pluses is that, it, at least from my perspective, it's been extraordinarily well tolerated. No one discontinued the medication because of any serious adverse events. Um, and there was nothing new about the drug that emerged in the larger phase three trial that sort of served as a warning that it would be problematic once it was uh, released into general use. And how does it compare to some of the other drugs which have shown promise in the fight for HIV patients in the past? I'm guessing that this is a real kind of light at the end of the tunnel moment for clinicians like yourself. Look, we've gone through, we've had many lights at the end of many tunnels um, and they've and most of them have withstood the test of time, right? So uh, probably protease inhibitors was one of the first great lights at the end of the tunnel back in the late 90s. Uh, but there have been subsequent, you know, second and third in class protease inhibitors that have likewise been new lights. Uh, probably the biggest uh, light at the end of the tunnel were the integrase inhibitors, um, which prevent integration of uh, reverse transcribed uh, viral uh, double-stranded DNA into the host cell uh, genome. Um, and they were, you know, they were a, sort of a masterclass of drug development um, that took a long, long time, uh, but, you know, really become standard of care for initial treatment, well, a, for part, a component of initial treatment now in basically all countries including in low to middle income countries. So that's probably been the biggest step forward in terms of drug development over the last 25 years. So fostemzivir, because it arrived later, will have a smaller impact. Uh, but for people who failed treatments like protease inhibitors and integrase inhibitors, it will be, I think, a key component of a salvage regimen. Fortunately, there are other drugs coming in other new classes um, that could conceivably be combined with fosstemzivir for a complete regimen for somebody who has truly failed everything. And in terms of some of these patients have been offered so many treatments and I can imagine there would be 
possibly some hesitancy if things haven't worked for these individuals in the past. Could you tell us a little bit about what the treatment regime looks like for patients with this newer antiretroviral? Well, this particular um, medication is pretty easy to take. You know, it's it's one pill twice a day with or without food. So uh, for people who've been taking uh, a lot of medications uh, with multiple pills a day, I don't think they bat an eyelid when you tell them what's involved. It's really what you combine it with that makes it complicated or, or easy. The additional point is, of course, that these patients in the main are going to have very, very advanced HIV infection. Uh, so they know they're looking down the barrel of AIDS and death. So uh, the few people I've prescribed this medication for have, have jumped at the opportunity. There's been no hesitancy. And how accessible is it set to be for Australian patients who are suitable for treatment like this and who might benefit from it? Um, I think it's already become accessible, right? So it's uh, uh, the manufacturer has been, I think, really taken a very positive approach in making it available before reimbursement uh, for people with advanced disease. So not only did I have patients who participated in the phase three clinical trial, but I have other patients who have uh, participated in other clinical trials that have actually been able to include fostemsevir in the new regimen for, for, that, uh, for that trial. So in fact, they're taking one drug in late phase three development that wasn't even licensed at the time and combining it with an investigational drug and full credit to both the company for you know, offering that up and to the regulators for allowing that to happen in the clinical trials. So you know, to be able to access two new drugs, one of which is at least one of which is first in class as part of a salvage regimen really offers a big chance to patients that they can get undetectable and stay undetectable. You mentioned just before that you know, the access isn't the same in overseas nations who, you know, are still seeing higher rates of HIV infection than we do in Australia. Are drugs like this as readily available in other nations? Um, I, my understanding of Fostemsevir's availability internationally uh, is unfortunately quite limited. Um, my suspicion is that it will not be widely available at this stage. Um, I'd need to go back to uh, to Vive Healthcare, the manufacturer, and ask them for their plans for fostemsevir. My limited understanding is that it's not a hugely expensive medication to to make. Um, I hope I haven't spoken out of turn there, uh, and therefore that would offer hope that it might become available uh, in low and middle income countries. And I imagine that having treatments like this, it's reassuring as a clinician if you're treating patients who have failed other treatments and have few other options. But I imagine that there's still going to be patients for whom these new drugs don't work. What's being done in research at the moment to continue to help close these gaps? Um, So this is first in class. So in theory, it will work in everyone. Now, whether it has a sustained impact will depend on what you combine it with and whether you can get somebody to an undetectable viral load for if you can do that for a couple of months you probably can do it forever 
Um, the so what you want is at least two potent drugs uh, to be commenced at the same time. So there are a couple of other medications uh, in development. Um, uh, Gilead Sciences has a medication that can be both given as a, an injection maybe once every six months, uh, as well as, a, as a, in a tablet formulation. Um, uh, MSD has a, a medication which is sort of has its origins in the nucleoside analogues like uh, AZT and tenofovir, um, but has a slightly different structure and different mechanism of action, which looks very, very promising um, and uh, at this early stage, super well tolerated. Um, so those medications, you know, combined with fostemzivir could make a really attractive combination for somebody who's failing everything. And as you've already said, things like this can give people decades more time in their lives. In your career, what have you seen as some of the major milestones in the fight against HIV and what's still left wanting in the field? Um, oh, yeah, it's been an amazing uh, period to, to sort of live through and, and, and watch uh, us going from a universally fatal disease where most people were diagnosed late, then spent one or two years in the most terrible uh, ill health with lots of Ill, lots of infections and cancers and dementia, and then die. And of course, there was the huge social overlay, you know, where uh, whole slabs of pe infected people were sort of ostracised by communities and families. Um, and now, you know, we've we've had the in, uh, this invention of about thirty new drugs. We've had viral load testing. We've had developed the understanding of undetectable viral load. We know that er earlier and earlier uh, commencement of treatment offers benefit to the point now where most people in Australia who are diagnosed uh, uh, commence treatment within the first few months of, uh, after diagnosis rather than waiting five or ten years. We know that treatment prevents transmission. Um, which is a, a really important public health message. Um, and it, that's been also a, a big thing in sort of destigmatizing HIV. Uh, nevertheless, stigma remains. You know, I, I work in Darlinghurst in Sydney, uh, which was sort of ground zero or one of the ground zeros for HIV in Australia. So around here, sort of being gay and being HIV positive is not a huge deal, but the further you get out into the suburbs and the more further away you get from the big cities, the more old perceptions remain. Um, so, you know, there are people who still come to the clinic here in Sydney and they travel 500 kilometres because they don't want their community to know, their family to know, they don't even want their GP to know. So we've still got a long way to go in, in that sense. But now, you know, most people with HIV have gone from being, you know, being old at 25 to being, you know, to having normal middle age and old age uh, and expecting to live pretty much the same length of life as the average person without HIV. Uh, where, you know, so HIV is no longer their primary medical concern. 
and the treatments have just got simpler and simpler and kinder and more potent at the same time. So I think the future is really bright. Um, and probably for, for infected patients, for uninfected patients, we've now got um, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. And that has had a, a pretty sizable impact on reducing new HIV infections in areas where the, its uptake has been good. So in inner Sydney, uh, new infections went down by about 50% following the uh, introduction of PrEP. Uh, and PrEP glo globally is, you know, it has really gathered steam over the last five years and will continue to grow. Um, the last, probably the, the next thing that will happen is will be the introduction of treatments that don't need to be taken every day. So there is um, there is an injectable uh, combination that will be given every two months. So that's a sort of like first in class combination that's parenteral. Um, and I, in the same way that medications uh, years ago were very complicated, these are first generation injectables. I anticipate that they will also come up head in leaps and bounds. In parallel with that will be oral medications that might be taken once a week or maybe even once a month. Uh, so, you know, HIV will sort of recede into the background more in terms of patient health. Professor Andrew Carr, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. The Tea Room is brought to you by the reporters at the Medical Republic. Production assistance, the music and artwork for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time.